Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. One of my favorite things to look at is how uh, different cultures think about robots and AI. Like, and I think because we're really a victim of popular culture here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the Japanese, because they grew up with Astro Boy, I think just naturally love robots. And we got Stanley Kubrick and the Terminator. So it kind of <laughs> created a sense that AI was not necessarily our friend. But I mean, you're really trying to convince us the otherwise. Yeah, no, that's, uh, <laughs> that's exactly right, actually. You know. The the beyond yeah the, yeah so no you're you're there is a I think the narrative for AI especially in America has been written primarily by Hollywood than you know <laughs> uh, than any, anybody else so I mean when when most people think of AI they think of uh, um, they think of the Terminator they think about the 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 ex machina they think about these these notions of AI or robots going to take over your life and we think about AI I like to say, tell my team we think of uh, Iron Man and Jarvis suits, right? So how do you augment the human being in the picture by helping them make better decisions, see better, hear better, taste better? And how do you make the human experience more powerful, more, you know, Elaborate, if you will, with the assistance of machines, and machine intelligence. Even the concept of augmented intelligence sounds like a defensive posture, though. You know, it's 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 not quite the, you know, the six million dollar man. It's it's more that you've heard of AI, but actually this is going to make you better and smarter. Yeah, no. So I think you know, it's it's a, it's an interesting uh, viewpoint. The way I would like us to think about augmented intelligence is, as I, you know, the the whole self-driving cars and robots and autonomous vehicles and autonomous systems, if you will, are still a little way far away. We hardly even understand how the human brain works, forget how human mind and consciousness works. Right. So the, the notion of augmented intelligence is like, how do you flip the order to see what does it take to make the human experience more powerful? What does it take to actually make, instead of thinking machine first and intelligence first, and saying, okay, how do I actually mimic human cognition and do something exactly like humans? Flip the order to see there's a human in the picture in the center of it. How do you make the human experience better? By augmenting and extending their cognition, their creativity, and you know, make them make this. I mean, because the human being's already the world's most advanced uh, machine learning platform. As we know, right? Right. It just has a few biological drawbacks. Yep. <laughs> it just, it's just like, it's something you know, it doesn't do too well with time, but yeah. uh, everything else is... Uh, it's like they say conspiracy yeah. theory is the ultimate example of overfitting. That's true. <laughs> that is exactly right, actually. <laughs> the conspiracy theory is. I'm having a cup of coffee in Austin with uh, Ganesh Padamaban, who's the VP of Global Business Development and Marketing at Cognitive Scale, which is one of the world's leading uh, organizations, not surprisingly, in the field of augmented intelligence. Uh, Ganesh, it's it's good to meet you. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the show, Mike. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about, about augmented intelligence because I, I think a lot of people have got their heads around the idea of robo- robotic process automation. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, it's, it's very appealing, the idea that you're essentially just taking kind of the routine work that a human being at a terminal, maybe in the Philippines or in India was doing and just replacing it by software. It's almost mm-hmm. like a macro. Mm-hmm. Where do these cognitive systems, the kind that you're now working on, where, did that, where does that take us further? Mm-hmm. That's a great uh, <clears throat> setup to think about it. The frame of reference, if you think about 
you know, like let's start with, you know, from a technology perspective, start with data. So you have data and then when you apply, you know, uh, um, algorithms and software to actually make sense out of the data, you call that more like business intelligence or the way you actually visualize it and stuff. Take it a step further and you actually say, uh, how do I how do I look at this data to predict something that happens in the future? That's where techniques like machine learning and things like that comes in. If you look at the spectrum of, you know, on one end you have a human being making all the decisions, doing all the tasks, to the other end being, you know, things like autonomous vehicles where it is completely autonomous, the machine's doing everything. That entire spectrum is where things like RPA, things like AI and cognitive computing falls. RPA we see that as more like, as you said very clearly, it's a rules-based system. How do, we, how do I look at a task that a human performs? Yeah. Could be filing documents, could be filling up form. <laughs> Automate that using, you know, and there might be some techniques that I use to read a document like OCR or machine learning and computer vision. But the notion of how do I create a certain rules that can be followed by machines and executed through software without the human being being involved. You go all in a little further on that, there's going to be two things that it cannot do in an RPA system is one is think and you know provide a cognitive decision-making you know, process that is not, you know, a rule can't actually do it. How do you mimic a decision-making process, number one. And then number two, the other thing it doesn't do is it doesn't learn and get better over time, which you have the robots right now. It's going to be the same way it's going to be after doing 100,000 iterations or 10,000 iterations, right? right? So augmented intelligence or the notion of AI comes in wherein you know, you're trying to mimic human cognitive functions uh, and with a feedback loop in it, that's what makes the difference between a plain machine learning to augmented intelligence. With the human in the picture, when it, you're surfacing a particular pattern and say, here's a decision I recommend you make for this particular process, you're giving them reasons on here's why and you know, here are the evidence why I actually recommend that decision. The human can actually say, I agree with it, or I actually don't agree with it. I know it looks like this, but I have my human intuition and my experience which tells me this is otherwise. So the system over time learns that output is, is essentially one that shouldn't be weighted. Exactly. So the human, be, the human being in the loop will also ensure the system is trained and gets better over time as you iterate through it. And that very clearly differentiates what this notion of augmented intelligence from just regular AI approaches right. and even like RPA and things like that. And of course, the other advantage of this is that it's a better use of your human expertise in the organization because you're, you're literally using your people to simultaneously do a job, but also train systems to do the job as well. And, and so, so one of the, there, there's two data points or two, two things if you think about it. There's 10,000 baby boomers retiring in the United States every day. And you know, there's a lot of institutional knowledge and human knowledge and human capital that has been in a particular organization or the industry for like 30, 40 odd years. Mm. How do you capture that, right? Uh, the other part, side of this is the people used to talk about data being the uh, competitor differentiator in the new age. If you're an enterprise and you know, you, if you have more data than the other competitor reviews, you're in a better position. Actually, the nuance is it's not so much data, it's the knowledge that you can harness out of that data, right? And most of this knowledge doesn't reside in documents and PDFs and emails, it resides in human brain. Right. So it becomes an important tenet if it, for any you know, current century organization to be successful, they have to figure out how do I harness human knowledge, use techniques like AI to go harness that, 
and then put it to... And it's not even knowledge in terms of symbolic knowledge. It's, it's, it's literally a, a kind of a machine learning pattern that's in it people's is. head, right? It is, very Like, much. given these circumstances, here is, in general, the right way to respond that leads to a good outcome. Exactly. And, you know, it, it could go from a wide variety of things from, uh, you know, we, we, we actually, in healthcare, we capture how care managers behave when they're actually providing care for cancer patients mm. and apply that so that when a new hire comes in, they're being prompted with recommendations saying, these are the right steps to take because Joe uh, XYZ did this for 30 years and he thinks this is the best way to actually address that particular function. That's really fascinating. What, what are some other examples of talent patterns that are being, I guess, captured and preserved in code? Yeah, so, <laughs> well, what, you know, a classic example, if you think about it, one of the, you know, we, we actually look at, when we look at AI, there's like organizations are deploying like broadly in five different patterns, right? And, and we call it like they either go put AI into action by focusing on people and making human experience better. They go improve a process to make that better. They actually take advantage of the data that they already have created to build something out of that. They make their products more intelligent. Or lastly, they capture this knowledge. That's the way we're seeing this broad pattern across the industry. Uh, a classic example of this is uh, help desks and you know call centers and stuff, where we're seeing a lot of organizations. We did some work with a, a CPG company um, um, in, in Europe, and they had this issue where their employees were looking at uh, uh, getting assistance for a particular product line that they have internally. They will pound the IT department and the help desk department with a lot of questions. Mm. And a lot of them was mundane, you can answer through FAQ, but some of them required you to understand the nuance of who the scholar is, where they're coming from, what's their background, what their current relationship, what the history has been, and make a personalized impact when you do the response. And they were bottlenecked as any other call center is, any other help desk is, in terms of uh, providing scaling for that support model. What we did was actually in, in institutionalized, put a Jarvis suit around each of those technician on the other side of the line where they get a prompt when a call comes in. We did this also for an insurance company in San Antonio, USAA, a huge customer of ours. We're helping them deploy the same thing around in the context of how do I provide better member support on the phone? And it's not so much about capturing so the capture happens in two ways. One is you're actually the system is learning from different interactions and providing this, you know, presumptive suggestions to the agents who are supporting someone. And when they say that's actually and there's still the human in the picture, they say this is not a good thing or this is the right thing to do. I executed it. Let me watch the impact of what the action was and then capture that and codify that knowledge that says, now the rank of that particular recommendation became all the way at the top. Right, because it worked. Gets for, cause it worked, right? So that's one, you know, there's, there's a lot of things there. Then we do a lot of work, as I mentioned, on the financial services side, right? And uh, it's about scaling advisors. How do I actually make sure that there's a small set of people who's helping a lot of people make better financial decisions can scale their expertise to go support more and, and do it with a personalized touch. What, what do you, you know, what's the DNA of a great financial advisor that can, can be captured by, you know, a pattern like this? Like, what, what are you exactly trying to, to, to track? You know, uh, it, it's an interesting question. And, you know, depending on who you ask, uh, you know, you will get a very biased answer or a specific answer. The way we think about it, you know, financial advisor or like wealth advisors, for example, is, in this modern day and age, 
the, the classic method of actually how you manage customer relationships have you know, been you know, challenged pretty heavily, right? People are more digital, people are more mobile, people are actually expecting a personalized touch. You know, and it's actually, and I used to, I come from the enterprise you know, IT space in my background, and it's funny to actually see the enterprise customer is expecting a consumer experience, right? Yeah. Because that's what you know, the Facebooks of the world have taught us how to actually behave. So in the context of financial advisory, if an advisor can provide, you know, uh, for, from their perspective, very personalized service to their clients, it goes a long way in actually driving retention, having better relationship, you know, and better performance for the assets, you know, you know for, for everything. The second big thing that they have to do is, there is a lot of things happening that if there's a news event that breaks, how do you actually react to that faster than your competition, faster than the rest of the market? Right. It's going to be like a, a like a tax law change. Or there's a tax law change. I'm a classic example. Cambridge Analytica, uh, uh, the the news break that happened about how they utilized and meddled with the U.S. elections with Facebook data. And if you're using, if you're owning a portfolio of social media ETFs, I mean, you better be concerned. You better know what to react to it and what's the right strategy to use right. before your client calls before you. Before your client calls you, right? So you can then provide a personalized experience when they call you. And then lastly, I think there's also the notion of how do I actually optimize? If you're an advisor, you're always looking for optimizing for performance, right? For your portfolio, for your asset pool. And you're constantly having to look at multiple sources of data and feeds and streams coming in weeding out the noise to seeing what, what actually should help me make better decisions, um, and then do that in real time and go enable that, right? So there's a lot of things that, you know, and again, I might be biased by the fact that I've seen the good side of it when you attach an advisor with their robo suit, which will actually make them better, yeah. and I can see all these values come in. Right. If you go to a traditional advice who's not seen that, it might be a totally different story. Right? You know, the, the the thing about all of this that's that's quite interesting is that for the last hundred years or so, there's been a story in the 20th century about using technology and automation to drive standardization and simplification of processes. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, this led to the dehumanization of the way we treat customers and clients and patients. Yeah. So you were a number mm -hmm. and banks knew how many accounts they had. They didn't know how many customers they had. and and if you wanted to do something that was out of the norm, you either, they wouldn't deal with you or you had to pay a lot of money. Do you think now that companies really have a choice about this because these same technologies could use to further drive standardization or they could be used to drive personalization at scale? You know, I would say, I would even say they don't even, they don't have a choice. Your interest rates are at a, you know, historic lows, right? The cost of servicing a client has gone up so much yet the expectations from the client has actually only skyrocketed in terms of personalization. So to me, personalization at scale is almost a requirement mm. to be doing business when you're directly dealing with consumers, right? Um, so that's, I mean, we've, we've seen uh, one, of the, one of our clients, a bank in, uh, in the UK, uh, what they did was actually put the power of this personalization you know, two ways. One is on the wealth advisory side, they actually put gave capabilities for the wealth advisor to do a personalized service, right? But on the other hand, they were targeting, uh, we actually partnered with this company called Bridgeweave Technologies. They are actually locally in, uh, in, in the UK, in London. Akshaya Bhargava was the ex-CEO of uh, Barclays Wealth, so who was also our first client in the financial services. He actually started this company called Bridgeweave Technologies. What, they, what he does is 
he's using our core AI platform. Well, what he does is actually create a mobile app for the banks to go give a quant in the pocket of every retail investor the bank has. Right. right? So if you're a um, if you're a retail investor today, you're just used to making decisions on your own or looking at hundred reports and stuff. How do I drive personalization based on your risk tolerance, your preferred sectors, your coverage, your risk profile, your history and transactions with the bank, and you know how and how critical and important you are? How do I drive that in the hands of their in a self-service fashion in a mobile phone, you know, in a mobile app, if you will? And that to me is like you know. If you're in retail banking, if you're in any form of consumer interaction in, at scale, you, it's almost a must-do today, or it's an adapt-or-die situation if you're not personalizing at scale. What's the what's the uh, the secret sauce when it comes to humanization and personalization? I mean, there's aspects of this can get very quickly inappropriate or creepy or uncanny for the customer. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when someone an advisor you've never met asks you about your kids and your and your dog, and they actually already know the answer, it's you know, it's 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 not something that's going to be seen in a positive light. It is, and and uh, it's it's always the you know the, the people say this uh, all the time. People complained about, hey, I can't give up all that information yet. We're happily posting and sharing personal stories on Facebook. Well, this right? is the thing, and if you have a system that can then uh, drag it and put it in front in a call center, how do you design a system that provides just the right level of humanity? So I think I think this is a very interesting thing, right? One of the fundamental thing around this notion is how do you build trust with the human being in the picture, right? right? And especially when you're working with machine intelligence, that's an important question. On the one hand, I would say you have to look at. Uh, making sure that you know you make the experience so valuable for the other person, so you have to drive on the on the face of value. Like Facebook, nobody complains about you know posting a personal post there. I'm sharing that I'm going to be out of town for 10 days, and you know my kids are going to be at the day uh, you know at, at a at a relative's place. People share that with people they want, but because the experience the platform delivers them is worth them sharing that information, right? Something to that effect. So there's one is how do you make the value that they're going to get out of the interaction you know bigger and better because they shared something with you on the other hand is humanization in terms of how do i make sure that the interaction doesn't look creepy and does actually is looking at you know i'm building a trust relationship with you right now here's how and some of the things are like very clearly the the gdpr uh, movement happening where you ask before you use someone's information right instead of saying hey i used it and hope you like it kind of a thing so there are the standards coming and evolving, but it's that human-centric design yeah. has got the trust equation right in the middle. And you know, we strive to do that in augmented intelligence and you know AI systems that we do for enterprises. Be it you know, as I said, the, if you're in the call center supporting the agent on the side versus how do you even frame those questions? How do you not tell them that hey, by the way, you know, maybe when you open the call with the customer, you say by the way, I have your information from these seven sources. That you've already authorized that I have it, right? Right. So, and so you're kind of preparing them for exactly, right? Yeah. Then just dropping a bombshell. So it's the, it's. I think it's the process and the human-centric design that goes along. Yeah, with it. that. I, you remember in the old days when they first figured out uh, they could link um, phone number records to database records. That mm-hmm. I think some of the credit card companies, when you when you when they when you rang them, they'd say yes, Mr. Walsh. And it just freaks people out. Yeah. You know, they just didn't like it. So, just because you can do something doesn't mean, from a human design set, uh, standpoint, standpoint, it's actually a good idea. Yeah, I agree. So let's switch gears a little bit. So, you, you know, one one 
in some ways, the weak part of the augmented intelligence relationship is is actually not just the design of the machine, but the design of the human. <laughs> uh, how do you think we're going to evolve smarter leaders? Like, what are the kinds of skills on the human leadership side that will become more important when you have computers to augment you? You know, one of the, uh, and we kind of briefly touched on the notion of, you know, when you think about things like self-driving cars and autonomous systems and, and humans being completely replaced by machines, the one thing that stands out is we still don't understand how the, the soft side of the human uh, uh, being works, right? Mm. We don't understand the human mind. We don't understand, we don't hardly even understand how the, uh, why neurons fire the way they do in their brains, but the human mind, the human consciousness and stuff. So the adaptation for the humans in the picture, in my opinion, is gonna be more on the soft skill side, right? How do I, how do you become more empathetic? How do you become more uh, uh, a generous person? How do you make sure that you're actually looking at this because you know, doing calculations and providing results, and you know, um, doing math and science is eventually, at some point, will be left to the machines, right? But the part that cannot be done, at least from our vantage point at this point, uh, by machines, is going to be how do you care for the other individual? How do you bring empathy into the conversation? How do you um, how, how do you build leaders? How do you actually you know build emotional? How do you motivate people? How do you motivate people? Right. Uh, you know, I agree with you. And there's there's another piece to this, which if you're trying to, if you're trying to judge what a great customer experience is, that's also something that's difficult for a machine to actually determine whether it's achieved or not. It, it's an analog concept. Like, it has is. this been a great call? I think someone in the call center would know at the end of it whether they've done a good job or not. But exactly. but, but the machine wouldn't be able to gauge that. Exactly, and I think you know. So some, so I would say, some part of it can the machines can be trained to look at it, right? You, the specific example, you have things like topic mod modeling. You have techniques to look at how the words are being arranged. So right. there is a good, level of stress. Yeah, but, exactly. But but there's know? still something intangible. Exactly. I, I mean, if you walk into a, a particular retail environment and you go, this. This is a fantastic store. What what is it? Albert what Einstein said this right. The highest form of intelligence is intuition, right? Mm -hmm. And I think uh, it's that notion that the human just I just know that it's actually true or not true. Sometimes I can't explain the reason why, uh, but I think that's where the human beings win, right? Against and will always win against machines. And well, what have you been seeing with some of the customers that are rolling out your technology? Like, what are the types of people that have really kind of embraced this and, and have become Tony Starks as opposed to. <laughs> <laughs> so I think so w there's, there's definitely a, um, a persona of those yeah. successful folks. And I think most of them are, um, have a track record. Well, you know, so I, I think there's organizations and there are leaders within, right? So the people in organizations uh, are like more forward thinking organizations. A lot of banks who actually has like, I don't wanna miss this wave of innovation with AI, as I've missed some of the previous ones, but individuals and leaders, they're usually the risk takers who are actually thinking about saying, okay, you know what? If I look at the last 200 years of history, every scientific innovation that ever happened has always benefited the human being, right? It's been proven over and over. I have every reason to believe that this new thing called AI is not gonna take my life away or my jobs away. So I have to uh, uh, look at it from that perspective. So people who embrace the notion that there is this is a huge opportunity than uh, a new challenge they have to solve for. That's a big mental shift that we're seeing who are very successful doing that. Mm -hmm. The second thing is there's a lot of folks who actually are better pontificators than actually doers. 
So we talk about think tanks all over. I like the notion of do tanks, right? So these are folks who actually said, you know what? There's this technology called AI. You have some machine learning in there, some natural language processing, some computer vision. I am trying to solve this five different problems in my enterprise. Let's pick one and go deep and see how we can solve it with this technology, right. right? And they dip their feet in, they go make it happen. And we make it easy. Like, you know, I also believe that uh, it's the owners is in a lot of organizations like Cognitive Scale who have to actually look at how do I make this process easy, right? And a couple of things we did was we actually built this notion of a 10-10-10 model. We, we tell our clients, in 90 days, you will either see value or you won't, right? But you're, gonna, but you're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna pay for success. You're not gonna pray for success. You're gonna pay for success. And in 10-10-10 basically stands for 10 hours to model your first use case, 10 days to stand up your reference application with your and data coming in. 10 million on your invoice. No, ten, not 10 <laughs> And 10 weeks to actually okay. have an app running in production. <laughs> but uh, I wish it was 10 million, by the way, so, <laughs> but it's not. Uh, but there, there, are, there are definitely, you know, deployments that we have done that has generated value way over 10 million in 90 days or less ever since it went live, right? right. So, um, but I think there, there, is a, there is definitely the leaders, the forward-thinking folks who are embracing it and, you know, they're doing it instead of talking about it, they're acting on this particular thing. And then lastly, I think there is this notion of how do I bring everybody together in the journey, right? And, you know, the, there's a lot of folks who do this one-shot proof of concepts and stuff, it never goes anywhere. Those are also folks who haven't really embraced the whole notion of how do I bring a team of people together? The whole cultural change. The whole well. cultural change yeah. around it, right? How do I, as you said, the human centricity, right? How do I evolve as a human being around this new technology that's actually you know, uh, coming in and helping me? And, 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 and that leads me to this, this, this other subject, which I think is very important, which is the, um, which is the pragmatic side of our aversion to to ro robots and AI, which is how do you design responsible systems? Mm -hmm. and, and I was interested because you actually, before you joined um, this organization, you actually had a startup around explainability in mm -hmm. AI. Can, can you talk a little bit about that and how you ended up essentially yeah, here? Yeah, so, I mean, it was very early. So one of the things that, you know, when I um, personally got out of my last big job, I was at Dell EMC uh, running a global business. and. I was feeling the itch of going back and doing something on my own. And one of the premise there was actually, if there is only, you know, we know that uh, the whole, as you said, when AI to become, AI, there was no doubt in my mind that AI is gonna be the technology for the next couple of decades. It's gonna continuously keep evolving. It's gonna have a huge impact on human, uh, uh, human potential. One of the fundamental blockades I saw was the notion of you know, it's half, 90% of the AI systems you see, 90% of the bots you see is unexplainable. It's right? black box. It's a all. black box. You yeah. cannot see why it made, uh, made a particular decision. And so my thesis there was, and it was very much a thesis at that time, if I figure out, if I learn the, the top five to 10 data science platforms in the world that people use to build these models, if I understand that well enough, then I should be able to provide an API for anybody building AI systems right. on those. Essentially, like an audit trail. Exactly, right? And it's a little bit of audit trail, a little bit of explainability from the notion of you know, human centricity, right? How do you actually explain a decision a bot made or a particular AI made yeah. in the context of the user who's actually consuming that decision, right? right? And it doesn't have to be, I'm gonna get to the ninth, 
the 99th layer of the neural network and explain what's happening there. It just happened to be, how do I explain it in the context so I give you enough confidence that this is actually true and it actually is, is, is digestible for the human in the loop, right? So that evolved to this thing and at cognitive scale, we have a huge focus around this notion of AI, uh, responsible AI. And we look at it from responsible AI, from a you know, capabilities perspective, I think there is, you know, if you're building an AI system, you should build an explainability built in. So if uh, an AI comes and tells you that, hey, I recommend you go long on this particular stock for the trader, and here's the, uh, you have to give them evidence and explainability why you're recommending that. Because it could, it could make or break that particular uh, decision. And then let the human actually make a determination whether they want to go with it or not. Right. right. Um, there's things around, uh, you know, how do I actually, you know, build these systems with the notion of the right human-centric design that we actually mentioned. Um, so you never are taking, you know, things like we call it a kill switch, an ethics switch, right? How do you make sure that if you see the system going rogue, there's an easy kill button that you can turn it off? So things like that, how do you actually make it a, a, a part of a framework that can be easily adopted? And we, you know, so this notion of responsible AI, and then there's the other side of this, the societal side of this thing, right? There's going to be an emergence of a new collar job market that's going to come up and people are actually going to be, you know, seeing RPA and AI taking up the jobs and mundane tasks they used to do. Yeah. There's going to be a new set of, you know, uh, maybe you'll see human beings who are better at training machines to do certain things you know, and training them on how to actually make decisions, certain things. There are new job profiles that's going to come up, right? Well, I mean, in the same way that you need machines to explain to humans, it'll take some humans who are good at explaining to machines. Exactly, right? Exactly. Yeah. And you've got to teach the machines, so it yeah. has to be a human to do that. So to make it real and practical, one of the things that Cognitive Scale is doing is how do we, and we're partnering with the World Economic Forum, we're partnering with you know, uh, AI Global, which is a not-for-profit not organization headquartered here in Austin, uh, which we co-founded a couple of years ago, uh, is how do I make this framework of, be it AI ethics, be it responsible AI, make it something that is very simple in the way you, everybody can adopt it, right? Yeah. And again, back to you have standards bodies, like IEEE is working on IEEE 7000, which is an ethical AI standards. There, it's still a little theory in terms of how what you should be doing. But if you make it into an open spec, you distribute it as a part of your assets that you're actually building with AI systems, now you make it easy for everybody. When they actually build something using this framework, it automatically has this capability around explainability or evidence and personalization, the, you know, all the essential aid as we uh, see it. So our focus has been driving practical AI, driving uh, practical AI with a human-centric approach right in the middle and to help drive unlock business outcomes and personal outcomes for uh, for businesses. That's been the big focus of ours. Ganesh, it's been uh, great talking to you. It's probably appropriate that you're named after the, the, the god of removing obstacles. So uh, <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Mike. Cheers. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.